You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 5th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, US President Donald Trump prepares to deliver his second State of the Union address. But how much will cut through the background noise of his growing legal difficulties? My guests Kathleen Burke and Jacob Parakilis will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Mexico's president joining the lengthening list of politicians asking what experts know about anything, China wondering how happy its new year is likely to be, B, and the Thai politicians hoping the voters will mistake them for someone else. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Kathleen Burke, Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at University College London, and Jacob Parakilas, Deputy Head of the US and the Americas Programme at Chatham House. Welcome both. And we look first at Washington, D.C., presently bracing itself for President Donald Trump's second State of the Union address, and his first to a Congress not controlled by his own party. The speech itself is unlikely to be remarkable. A pattern has by now been established whereby Trump more or less behaves himself during the big ceremonial set pieces and is rewarded with a few days of ecstatic reviews from pundits who should know better. The backdrop against which it is being delivered is more interesting. Trump's legal difficulties are not abating, despite his claims otherwise. (laughs) Federal prosecutors yesterday subpoenaed a large library of documents from Trump's inaugural committee. Um, Jacob, first of all, to the speech itself, what actually are the chances of Trump saying anything really all that interesting? The one thing that he might say that would have some kind of immediate significance is he might take the opportunity to declare an emergency on the southern border in order to permit his uh, wall to begin construction. At least that's the theory. Uh, In reality, any declaration of an emergency in order to build the wall would be met with immediate legal challenge, both from Congress and from the numerous private landowners along the border who would be in danger of having their land seized by eminent domain in order to make it possible to build it. So I would expect it to be tied up and probably overruled in the courts, but it would give Trump an opportunity to sort of shift the blame and say, well, I tried everything I could. Um, the, The courts stopped me. These evil liberal judges vote Trump 2020. Um, so I think that's probably – I mean, you know, one never entirely knows with Trump. The man puts uh, stock in trade in being unpredictable as he's reminded us many, many times. As you say, there is a pattern. I think it's harder to say that he's unpredictable. We do have a sort of pattern of behavior of Trump as president. So like you, I expect that he'll probably give a fairly uh, predictable speech with the usual flourishes about evil immigrants coming over the border to kill us. But then some you know, nice noises about bipartisanship and bringing down prescription drug prices and whatnot. Uh, Kathleen, is the fact of a a Democratic House of Representatives, which did not confront him last time he did the State of the Union, is it possible that that might bait him into either going off script or just greater belligerence than he exhibited this time last year? Well, at least it's not like they have a, we trust, a Democratic congressman who will yell, you're lying, in the way that the the Republican did at uh, Obama's speech, if you you recall. Um, It's, well, it's... I, I will assume they're all grown-ups and they'll behave themselves. You know, he is the president. If you get over the fact that it's Trump, he is the president, and there is an inherent uh, respect in the United States, especially these big, uh, you know, big 
public celebrations almost. Uh, after all, he is in a line from George Washington who sent over his note about the State of the Union. So in that sense, I think he will behave himself. I think that he will celebrate the economy, which has uh, had a several hundred thousand uh, increase in employment this past month and, and so forth and so on. I think he'll celebrate the fact that uh, he and uh, North Korea, uh, Kim, are new best friends. I think he will celebrate uh, the fact that he's uh, pounding down China and look how the United States is benefiting. So I'm, I, he will, I, as far as I'm concerned, he, he may he may say, look at those awful people stopping the border wall being built. But he's more likely, I suspect, to celebrate uh, the positives as he sees them. Uh, Jacob, Trump's legal difficulties are now well and truly becoming so myriad and multi-headed that it's genuinely becoming very difficult to keep track of them. But against the backdrop of what has already happened and what we already know, how significant is this subpoenaing of his inaugural committee by prosecutors in New York? What are they hoping to find? It is significant, but I would say we shouldn't expect, you know, this to lead to a rash of arrests in the next couple of weeks. Um, what they're hoping to find, so Trump's inaugural committee uh, raised $107 million, which is absolutely unprecedented. It's an order of magnitude more than either of Obama's or either of Bush's inaugural committees. And most of that money, it's really not clear where it was spent. A lot of it went to sort of consultancies with very odd names that don't really have much of a paper trail. So there's there's clearly something for prosecutors to dig into there. Now, whether that uh, leads to sort of indictments of people close to Trump or not, it's entirely possible that the the legal damage will be contained within people who are sort of at a remove or two from the administration itself. Um, but the real issue here is that this is not a Mueller investigation. This isn't uh, part of what Trump frequently calls the witch hunt. This is prosecutors at the Southern District of New York. There's a parallel investigation into aspects of the inaugural committee spending led by the prosecutors in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. So you have multiple separate outposts within the DOJ looking into aspects of this, which is really dangerous because you could theoretically fire Mueller at enormous political cost, but you can't fire everyone in every district attorney's office in the United States. And that's increasingly sort of the problem, that this has metastasized to a degree that it's no longer controllable. And New York has got a reputation for really going after them fiercely. In fact, if you're in Kansas, it might not be quite so dangerous, but New York is dangerous. Uh, Kathleen, a lot of the reporting, if not most of the reporting and discussion of Trump's legal difficulties <clears throat> is... Uh, there's a certain amount of wishful thinking, uh, partisan wishful thinking in both directions when it's discussed. There are there are people who, who sort of hope that the following day is going to see Trump frog-marched out of the White House by US deputy marshals, and there are those who insist that the whole thing is, uh, as Jacob reminds us, a witch hunt. Uh, leaving all kind of hopes either way about how this might pan out aside, do we actually right now, as of today, have a firm understanding of the, the depth of the soup that Trump is presently in? Well, it depends if you count them up, of course. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, that could take us some time. Well, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a wide lake, but how deep that lake is, uh, I suspect Mueller only knows. But... Uh, 
Well, just just look at the, the newest one uh, about the inaugural. We already know, it's already been admitted by Rick Gates that he actually, yes, he says, he may have taken some of the money from the inaugural committee in uh, um, uh, fake expenses. So I, I agree with Jacob. That's likely to catch an awful lot of smaller fish. I, Trump will only have to say, I didn't know anything about it. Okay, well, there will doubtless be plenty more where that came from, and there will be more discussion tomorrow on uh, Monocle 24 about what Trump does end up saying in the State of the Union a bit later tonight. But moving along, but sticking with the subject of populist American leaders addressing their fellow citizens, let's look south of the United States border at Mexico. Recently frocked President Andre Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO, has acquired the habit of hosting a live press conference at 7am most mornings. The possibility that this is some sort of prank at the expense of journalists not known as a breed of early risers cannot be ruled out. Among the targets at whom AMLO has taken potshots at these conclaves are what he describes as, quote, irresponsible technocrats, unquote, i.e. that recently unfashionable class of people who actually possess demonstrable expertise in their area of endeavour. Um, Kathleen, who does this actually play with? Who, who are the, the demographic cohort who cheer, not just in Mexico, but elsewhere when a politician takes on the experts? Well, it was taken on, of course, uh, here by Michael Gove, who said the the people were sick of experts. It was taken on in Greece, uh, used as as these technocrats, plus Angela Merkel, of course, who were trying to destroy Greek Greek people through uh, saying that they knew what was happening when they didn't really, you understand. Uh, It's Banks are real. I mean, having it's it's banks that are the the uh, um, object of denigration here. I think, and everyone knows that banks are full of people who are heartless and uh, claim to know what they're doing. One problem in Mexico is that an awful lot of them were scions of the Chicago uh, Chicago School of Economics, which is pretty. Um, fierce about letting freedom of, of uh, economic developments within a, within a country. And it's the last uh, 30 years worth of these young economic uh, bright chaps out of uh, who've been trained in Chicago. Seems to me, reading around that particular subject, those who, who, are, who are the targets. And who is going to support the technocrats? Well, exactly. Uh, Jacob, AMLO is is not just doubling, but tripling and possibly quadrupling, if not quintupling down on this sentiment. Among his uh, wheezes that he has proposed since taking office is a referendum tentatively scheduled for next month uh, on the wisdom or otherwise of putting the last five presidents of Mexico on trial. Um, as, as kind of populist stunts go, that's almost admirable in its audacity, but really how encouraging is this about the kind of Mexico that AMLO wants to run? It's it's a big <laughs> it's a big statement. I mean I think the 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 danger of that is that it sort of goes beyond sort of investigation into corruption. And I think anyone who's observed uh, Mexican politics and the intersection between the sort of uh, the Oil trade, the the resource extractive industries, the uh, the sort of patron political patronage would probably agree that there is a significant amount of corruption to be explored and unearthed and potentially prosecuted. Doubtless. But to say, but to say that you're going to do a sort of bulk prosecution or that you're putting up for popular vote. I mean, there's a reason why 
we don't do popular votes about the wisdom of putting people on trial. That should be done by professional prosecutors operating in an impartial and separate system of justice. That's the only way to avoid sort of mob justice and revenge. And that gets away entirely from the question of whether the person accused actually did anything. At some point, it's just it, it's not about actual any kind of recompense for actual wrongdoing. It's it's just a sort of um, declaration of war on the past. And I'm not really sure that that would necessarily advance the cause, the causes of anti-corruption, social justice that Emlo claimed during his successful campaign for president. That's not what he's trying to do, is it? He's mobilizing his base. And we've seen this before. After all, remember, Trump said that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton should be put on trial and into, into jail for what she'd done. So this isn't a new, wild, ex- extravagant uh, approach to, to politics. No, but Trump also didn't say he was going to put Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and George H.W. Bush uh, on so trial. It's not, <laughs> so I see. Your, your, your concern is not with what he's doing is with the, the, the wide-ranging, well, as you put it, bulk. So it's okay if it's one, but not okay if no, it's five. No, 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 that's that's not what I'm saying. My, my point is that the, the idea of putting, um, putting it to a referendum is fundamentally at odds with the idea of having a sort of impartial and independent judiciary. And obviously the judiciary to some degree is always linked to politics. They're politically appointed. But I think it's really dangerous to turn over to the public the question of whether people should be prosecuted. The thing is, you, you don't need to stretch your imagination too far to, th- to to think of Trump reading, well, actually possibly not reading of this, but hearing or seeing something about it on Fox News and thinking, actually, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> How, it is rather like a referendum, you know. If it's okay for the people to speak through a referendum, why not through a popular vote? But, but Kathleen, one of the many things that confuses me about politics of this sort is, is which demographic not so much which demographic cohort it plays with, but why. Because if you take the the broad historical view, I struggle myself to think of examples of places where hounding the educated elite out of public life has worked out well. No, but it's something that's not going to harm, they think, those who you wish to mobilize, uh, who theoretically, I suppose, uh, are, are, are resentful. They didn't know they were resentful, but he's told them to be resentful uh, of what these people have theoretically done to them. I mean, the point is there are a lot of people who are very highly overpaid. Uh, I mean, just telling... Certainly. Yeah, and, and sadly, they're not us. Um, <laughs> uh, who... I mean, to the extent, is, is it envy of that? Well, he's not saying all these hugely overpaid people, unless he is because I don't read Spanish very well. Um, but just the idea that all these unelected, uh, rich, uh, careless uh, people who are indifferent to the suffering of the great mass of Mexicans, um, that's what, uh, that's what uh, I'm always saying. Uh, Jacob, how potentially troubling could this get? Because Mexico is a huge and important country. Um, It would be, uh, I mean, not to say that it's without its problems already, but it would be uh, horrendous beyond uh, description were Mexico to take a a Venezuela-ish tack over the next few years. I think there's a there is a step difference between AMLO and Chavez slash Maduro. I mean, there might be, you know, he's early in his term, um, but AMLO did have a reasonably successful run as governor of Mexico State. True enough. He did demonstrate a more sort of um, low-key pragmatic style in governance than he did in running for office. So he definitely has within him the capability to sort of tamp down those passions and 
actually just occupy himself with the business of operating the levers of the state. Well, I mean, remember, you know, the the, the deputy governor of the Bank, Bank of Mexico says, don't worry, he knows what he's doing, it will calm down, and just watch what he does, don't necessarily listen to what he says. And certainly he's made a lot of appointments from the relatively traditional, I mean, it's, this isn't a, a case like, say, Trump or Bolsonaro, where a lot of the appointments come from outside the traditional political class. I mean, the, the deputy foreign minister, for example, is the former ambassador to London. I mean, these are appointments from within the existing sort of established, you could call them expert communities if you wanted. So again, I mean, I think there is a degree to which this is playing up passions and sort of trying to make up lost ground in this, the, the, his, his failed effort to rebuild the, the Mexico City airport, those kinds of things, sort of early losses in his campaign, uh, or not his campaign, in his administration. Um, but I also think that he does have the capacity to sort of govern for governing sake. I mean, time will tell whether whether that actually comes to pass. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Andrew Muller, along with Kathleen Burke and Jacob Parakilos. Coming up next, Happy New Year, China, or is it? Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's the Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Kathleen Burke and Jacob Parakilis. The year of the pig begins today, at least if one, if one rather, is an adherent of the Chinese <coughs> zodiac. According to the internet, people born in a year of the pig tend towards the energetic and gregarious and will find the colours of yellow, grey and brown especially fortunate. However, if you will forgive the handbrake segue, it is far from certain that China as a whole will find this new year propitious. China's economy has has been knocked around by Donald Trump's chaotic trade war. Advanced data provided by companies listed on the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges looks discouraging, and that's before one even asks questions about the economic data that all this was being measured against anyway. Um, Jacob, are, are any celebrations of Chinese New Year by definition somewhat premature this year? Well, I think part of the problem is observing it from the West where we have incomplete information. We have information that sort of is relayed through either a very sort of um, pro-China state press or from sources that are sort of habitually critical of China. Finding sources that balance between those two and and try to dig down it is relatively difficult. And also, I mean, as you said yourself, the, the underlying data is not necessarily 
indicative as it might be in a country with more political and economic transparency. Um, so it is hard to tell. I think, I mean, you know, a, a slowdown relative to China's recent meteor meteoric rise is relative. I mean, you know, going from 7 or 8% growth to 5 or 6% growth is a big difference, but it still would make it an enormously fast-growing economy by historical standards. Um, the question is, what interests come into play and what interests change when you go from extremely high growth to merely regular growth? Uh, Kathleen, I, I never know myself quite what to make about these uh, recurring stories about China and how it's all going ho horribly wrong and how we should all start panicking and buying gold, uh, etc. Uh, on, on two levels. One is that one that we've been talking about, about the degree to which any of Chinese economic data has ever meant anything anyway. Um, and, and also the fact that isn't some sort of slowdown inevitable after the extraordinary growth uh, of China's recent decade? Well, China hasn't uh, uh, repealed the uh, business cycle. So, yes, what goes up must come down, but normally what goes down will also go up again. They've been quite honest about the stock markets. Uh, uh, disappointing, disappointing uh, uh, in fact, um, activities or uh, relationship in the last, you know, in the last uh, month or so. So in that sense, uh, They've decided, I suppose, that don't try to cover up things that all the various other companies know about. So they, they have announced that particular thing. But yes, I mean, also a percentage rise from a low base is not huge either, you know, if you see what I mean. And if you look at the proportion of people in China, the millions and hundreds of millions who aren't particularly productive, um, there's a long way to go. So yes, uh, in the sense that imports, export, exports have fallen, well, that hits a certain number. It doesn't hit everyone. But yes, there's, uh, the point is that it, it's going to go down, and, and it's also quite a lot to do with, uh, with uh, the Trump trading uh, restriction, shall we say. But it was going to have to slow down anyhow because uh, you don't, they don't have the money to. Uh, they were giving masses of money to Chinese companies to finance them on bad terms and so forth. And that had to come to an end soon anyhow. Uh, Jacob, how much of a factor or otherwise is going to become the clearly increasing wariness of a lot of Western countries in particular about how wise it has been to outsource so much of their telecoms uh, to China? We're seeing a few countries, Australia and New Zealand in particular, uh, saying that uh, they're drawing a line under Huawei as a participant in their 5G networks and so on. Is that going to become that and related suspicions of where China's really going with with this uh, more of an economic factor than it already has been? It's going to become more of an economic factor. I mean, the Huawei stuff is clearly snowballing. You are beginning to see, as you say, not just sort of the US, which was an early uh, early adopter of paranoia about Huawei. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and to be fair, you know, I think <laughs> paranoia with some justification about Huawei. Um, and it's not paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was perhaps the wrong word, suspicion about Huawei. Um, the, 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 but that will snowball. I mean, it may be it may be survivable for the Chinese telecom sector if they can kind of section off Huawei and 
it reinvest in new firms. I mean, the, the reputational damage is probably done, but can be managed if, you know, trust is rebuilt under new names. It's a long-term project, but it's probably doable. If other Chinese companies are revealed to have been engaging in the same kind of espionage-related activities as Huawei, then I think then then you're you're beginning to cut off an entire sector of the economy not the only sector of the economy and there are other growth areas like auto manufacturing but it's it's a major issue and it's a sort of something that's seen as critical to the future uh the future internationalization of chinese industry this this is a very forward looking industry it's not steel production it's not coal it's telecoms which is modern and futuristic Okay, well, finally tonight, we will move along to Thailand uh, and to an innovative electoral gambit being pursued by a few candidates in next month's elections. Several candidates from uh, Pyo Chart Party, and apologies for my pronunciation, have changed their names to those of already popular politicians, specifically brother and sister former Prime Ministers Thaksin and Yingluk Shinawat. Uh, Pyo Chart's now, list now contains at least eight Thaksins and one Yingluk. Uh, Kathleen, is this going to work? Uh, we will find out. The election <laughs> returns, won't we? Um, it, it's, a, it's a strange one. They're clearly hoping to trade on positive associations with people that people may have uh, with those two former prime ministers in particular. But, but the usual uh, routine in democracies is to just sort of print election leaflets showing you with your arm thrown around uh, the object of yours and the voters' affections rather than just changing your name to theirs. It does seem a bit weird. Yes, it, I mean, it does have... Uh, I, I can see the uh, uh, the, in, the inclination, I suppose. I mean, if, if my name was, oh, I don't know, uh, um, Theresa May, for example, uh, perhaps running again as Elizabeth Tudor, name recognition, left the country uh, more secure, financially secure, more respected in Europe than when she came to the throne. That's a possibility. Jacob, name recognition, though, is a thing in the United States, very much so. And despite all the trouble you guys went to of holding an entire revolution to overthrow the idea uh, that, that power could be passed down through the genes, why does it work? What, what is it that people, especially in a, you know, in theory, a Republican democracy, find reassuring about it? I think it's connection to sort of the idealized past in so, to some degree. I mean, the sort of, you know, people talk with, in glowing terms about John F. Kennedy, for example. And it's not exactly the same thing, but I remember in 2004 when John Kerry was running, the, the Democratic Party made a huge deal about making him John F. Kerry, even though his, <laughs> his middle initial stood for something completely different than Kennedy. But the idea of this sort of aristocratic, tall uh, Massachusetts senator coming to into the country and bringing a breath of fresh air, and his initials are JFK. Obviously, that didn't work, or it didn't work well enough. D- for him the to middle win, initial but... thing's another weird American trope, though, isn't it? Is it Harry Truman or Ulysses Grant who inserted an S that didn't stand for anything? Truman. It yeah. was Truman. And you don't put a full stop after mm-hmm. it. Exactly. No, I've, I've, I've been involved in that argument in pub quizzes uh, <laughs> more than once about whether there's punctuation after the S in, in, in Harry Truman. Uh, definitively, there is not. There is not. <laughs> yes. But is, is America. We know. But, but Kathleen, is America particularly susceptible to this? Is that where they've got this idea from? Because I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of the United Kingdom and. Australia, the idea, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's never really caught on to the same extent. There haven't been sort of dynasties of Kennedys or Bushes or Clintons or or, or the equivalent. Well, um, in other countries, you mean. 
Or uh, what is it about the United States specifically that seems to crave rule by family? Why do, why, why do they like the royal family so much whenever they go over there? Um, I don't know. I think it's because they don't, they, they don't necessarily have one of their own. Um, you know, it's a good question. Back, back to your name, you know, your legal name in the States is first name, middle initial, and surname. You have to have that middle initial in there if you use it. That's, that's your legal name. So strange as though it may be, um, that's, that's, that's the law, as it were. But the most popular newsworthy items around the world tend to be the younger royals. It's not just this country. In fact, it's more in the United States and Germany and so forth. Look at look at Hello Magazine in six languages. <laughs> um, Jacob, are, are there any political names or, or, or dynastical names in particular that, that imbue you with confidence? <laughs> more um, than Elizabeth Tudor. <laughs> uh, Roosevelt? I mean, the, the, there, there aren't that many. <laughs> Uh-oh, I think we may need another half hour to have this one. Out. No, I mean, there aren't... There, there, I tend to be... Another part of the American character is suspicion of dynasties. I mean, we have this very sort of split personality about them. We we love them, we hate them, we we are drawn to them, but we also reject them. I think there's there's a, as I say, there's a whole separate conversation about that. Um, I I tend to think that an essential element of the Republican Democratic character of the U.S. is that you know we change our government. There's a two-term limit. You had you know FDR violated that norm, and when he was uh, when he after he died, they changed the Constitution to make sure no one would ever do it again. And and you know it doesn't explicitly prevent people from the same family from running, but I think there's a, a sense of sort of resistance to that. Then how come the Kennedys had several generations? Well, they had one president, and uh, do we have time to... <laughs> no, we, we, are, we are sadly term-limited uh, ourselves. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Kathleen Burke and Jacob Parakilis, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Augustin Machalari, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900, it's Monocle on Design. There's more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. Thank you.